0: Christ, for the world we sing, the world to Christ we bring, with loving zeal. The poor and them that mourn, the faint and overborn, sin-sick and sorrow boy, whom
1: Christ doth heal.
0: Hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm your host, Mo, and today's guest is Peter Burton. Welcome, Peter.
1: Hello, Mo. I'm so delighted to be here.
0: So happy to have you. Did you have like a quote or a mantra that you live your life by or do music by?
1: I think my mantra is that we're here on earth to make a difference,
0: to Mm. make a positive
1: difference. It's hardly an original mantra. But I think that being here on Earth is sort of a a unique gift and the ability to work, especially with children, in a certain time and space is a gift and to make a difference in their lives is maybe a more specific application of that mantra. And perhaps also because my own two daughters are in this choir program here in Newport, Mm. I take that responsibility especially seriously.
0: Wow. I love it. Um, That's such a great way to kind of like get right into it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what you do over at Newport?
1: Well, I grew up in a Methodist church tradition. I realized that uh, Tea Time is an an Episcopal production, but probably heard by people in many denominations. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in what might be known as a high Methodist church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I... um, Uh, Got to really know the liturgical year, wonderful hymnody uh, from an evangelical United Brethren background. Um, This was a pre-merger United Methodist hymnal um, remnant in a way. And I loved the hymns that we grew up with, and I loved the sense of space that the liturgical year provided for the context for everything. And... Um, I started attending that church with my best friend when I was about 10. And I gradually realized I wanted to do this for my life's work. And I became by great good fortune, the organist of that church for my senior year in high school. And that really put me on the way to a lot of independence of, of working habits and, you know, sort of cramming in a job like that when I was an inexperienced organist I had to practice a lot (laughs) (laughs) and I went on to college at the University of Michigan and studied um, organ performance as a major but became the assistant organist at the Episcopal Cathedral in Detroit which Mm. uh, at the time still had a men and boys choir um, a wonderful British choir master named David Bartlett who was a great inspiration to me for three years and it was there that I found my love of Uh, the specific liturgical traditions of the Anglican world Mm. and it was the advent procession of lessons and carols that convinced me in 1988 that I would become an Episcopalian as well as a (laughs) as well as a uh, more of a church musician than an organ performance person and Mm. that led me to Yale where I could get a lot more of the liturgical education than at the University of Michigan. Being at Yale, I was at uh, Trinity on the Green, New Haven, which has, uh, it was then just men and boys and a separate adult choir. Now, of course, they have the men and girls. And um, Walden Moore was another great inspiration. And at Yale, I studied improvisation with Jerry Hancock. And through the great good fortune of just being in the right place at the right time, being in his class, he invited me to be his assistant at St. Thomas Church Fifth Avenue which i did for 2 years and then i started my full-time work in the world and as as a you know as being the boss as opposed to being an assistant but you you really learn this art through being an assistant through observation through direct experience there's no curricular program in any institution anywhere in the world that could compare with the experience of doing it um, growing up and doing it on the job um like medieval tradespeople, it's it's no different and there it's one of those wonderful things for which there is no substitute and i was so fortunate to have three amazing assistantships with three amazing mentors both musical and personal mentors in a row and i think that sort of fully formed me for ministry to intergenerational choir programs and i've been affiliated with those ever since um one in Brooklyn Heights, New York, one in Worcester, Massachusetts, one in West Hartford, Connecticut, and finally here in Newport. That's just the quick jump ahead. I, I can skip over, but I think the formation part is so critical. Um, and in, in a way, it was the way that um, perhaps the most stellar of those three mentors uh, I served, Jerry Hancock, it's the way he grew up. He He grew up as a Uh, West Texas Southern Baptist, and that love of hymnody as the people's song, the the liturgy as the people's voice, that I think was his great charismatic skill, and the church where I grew up, and the organist that I listened to growing up had similar um, attitudes toward the inspiration of the people in the congregation. Um, So... Here we are. Wow.
0: That was such a beautiful little overview. Um, yeah, I feel like what you're saying about that formation and, and kind of going through all these different, um, I guess the way I see it is like when you go to church, no matter what kind of church, there's kind of this um, this growth in your connection and music is very often a way that people can feel connected to the church and can feel connected to God. Um, Something that Vince and I talked about in, in his uh, music episode for this season was kind of like, you know, if we sing, if we play, if we provide music, if we open the space and allow people to just come in and, and open themselves up. um, Yes, Music is just like this powerful way of, of, of people finding their faith.
1: It is, it, it's often called an international language. Although I remember a music history professor my freshman year at Michigan, who who put that quote on the board on the first day class and then spent a whole semester destroying the notion because it being an international language to some extent means you have to have some common reference point like the Western musical harmonic canon, mm-hmm. um, at, when you're familiar with that you can receive a lot and it's hard for say a new england ear to appreciate the microtonal world of indian music or um, different tonal systems entirely however um i think that professor malm was half right he he also uh, perhaps wasn't thinking in the spiritual dimension where you just go into a sonic receptivity mode and things come at your ear and your brain and your whole psyche in a way that doesn't need a context uh, that activates sort of core responses I think in the lizard brain somehow mm-hmm. and it's interesting thinking about all of that in the time of pandemic uh, even though you didn't ask me about that but there, oh, there's so much um, that I think musicians and artists around the world have been reconsidering. And when you can't connect through the same in-person medium, you, of course, defer to recordings and either visual or just audio recordings. It's what everyone has been doing, creating safely. And um, and so we're experiencing these things through uh, our computers rather than in the room with actual acoustic vibrations. And there's so much that's lost by not being there in person, the way sounds, um, particularly choirs, which are so you know multifaceted in, in all of the different points of origin of the sound. They can't possibly reach you in the same way when you're listening through earphones. Um, but that disadvantage in some ways, I think, heightens our awareness of the positive aspects of music as a communication device. Um, Sort of the way if you're deprived of the sense of smell, your sense of hearing gets more acute or a blind person can Mm. touch more acutely. And I can't wait until the post-pandemic world in a way because I think everyone's going to appreciate live music making and particularly community making of music like a choir is uh, with a greater degree of um, profound gratitude for the ability to get together and, and do that. It's such a human, historically human dimension. Um, Obviously the the world of say Bach and the Baroque, it was creating this amazing music, handing it to his children and other urchins to write out the orchestral parts and every week gather together and throw this together in a a cantata rehearsal and deliver amazing music. And there was no internet, there was no way to record. There was, you know, you just did it.
0: Mm.
1: And that's the essence of creativity. Um, even though you can create amazing things in the digital realm, uh, when you're talking about choral music, there's, there's just no substitute and it's going to be great to get back to. Sorry. I don't want to get too off topic here.
0: (laughs) No, I love it. Um, And just knowing about, you know, some of the listeners of this podcast, I'm sure they are also reveling in and just the truth in what you're saying. Mm. Um, But yeah, let's talk about music. So um, you have all this experience uh, with, I don't know the actual term in my head. I call it like, Oh, a blended choir of like, you know, adults and children. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us um, kind of how you started with that and, and how I, I would love to hear about the engagement of children in the church, like through music.
1: Well, I think if we go back to the medieval times and the historical formation of musicians most musicians and composers in the church and elsewhere um, grew up as choristers. They learned how to compose and how to sing and how to play the organ and how to write music um, for those particular combinations of instruments and voices through hearing it first as a performer. And boys, it was exclusively boys for centuries as, as is hardly surprising, um, although gr- regretful. It, um, it created a, a lineage of, of composers that really understood what it was to write for singers, because they all started out as singers. And if we're talking about Chicken and the Egg, you, you know, if you, you're looking at the tail end of four or 500 years of history of doing this in the Anglican tradition. So you're standing on the backs of, of giants
0: mm-hmm. before
1: you. But if you look at just say one family, the Wesley family, um, very interdenominationally famous, you know, there were, there was Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. And by hymn writer, I mean writer of text, not writer mm-hmm. of music exclusively. And then, um, His son and grandson went on to be famous organists and composers of music to go with those hymns, and the legacy within a family, or say the Bach family, uh, of a rich heritage of education, all started out for them as children. And it's not something you probably could have learned to as great a degree if you had started going to church as a 20 year old. It just, you know, the, the child's brain is so much more receptive and absorptive of an environment and a tradition and a whole atmosphere of music. So um, when you talk about the formation of children in 2020, or let's say 2019, mm-hmm. <laughs> back up before this mess, um, it, it allows you to jumpstart that whole creative process. And the number of um say people that are pop singers now in in you know boy bands or girl bands or solo acts so many of them when they're interviewed they say i grew up singing in church and they um and especially the composers i think of classical music they often say i grew up as a chorister in this or that tradition mm-hmm. uh, but it's often the anglican musical tradition or the church of england cathedral music you know all of that complex, wonderful choral music that is always intergenerational in the English cathedral context. It's always children singing the soprano line, along with adult altos, tenors, and basses. And now of course it's it's boys and girls. It has been for thirty or so years. The first big girls choir in England was at Salisbury Cathedral, and that's still going quite strong. And personally I I prefer the mixed sound of girls and boys together on soprano and both women and men singing alto. Um, and there are fine female tenors as well. Not too many female basses. All I did have one, <laughs> in, it was, she was a heavy smoker, but <laughs> <laughs> in my choir in Brooklyn, it was quite amazing. But anyway, um, there there is a great richness in giving children the opportunity not only to have this music in their ears, but to be treated as professionals, to mm-hmm. be um, to be set up with the expectation that you're going to behave like these adults around you. Not to say that that rehearsals are all work and no play. And it's particularly fun, I think, if you have um, a way of connecting with children. It, it, it It's a lot of fun to do this work uh, in intergenerational contexts. Um, there's always a fine line between what you can say to adults and what you can say to children. Um <laughs> I, I don't mean legally, I mean right. <laughs> sort of the way you you can teach to um often teachers will say, well, you should explain something twice, once for the left brained people and once for the right brained people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to explain things twice, once for the children, once for the adults. But you have a you have an obligation to make it clear to everyone in the choir. So sometimes that that does take a little more time, but once you get a, a group together and they're used to working with you for a good period of time, it's amazing how quickly you can make artistic changes and refinements to what's going on because they're working as a team. And like any refined team, like a sports team or um, a team of say, fashion designers that all work together or computer programmers, that are truly working as a unit, um, a choir is a great microcosm of community and interdependence and respect and all of the things that um, that make teams work. But it's unique in that children and adults—you know, you can have an age span of 80 years between them, perhaps extreme case—they're treated with the same responsibility. And that's truly amazing. Now the eight-year-old in a choir is a newbie and just sort of looking up to the 10-year-old and then maybe the 12 or 13-year-old. But by the time you have a 13 or 14-year-old, um, they're top banana in a training mm-hmm. system. And I know you want to talk a little bit about Voice for Life and the Royal School of Church Music. So right. this is a, a good um, setup for that in that the uh, the children are progressing to the point where they can really be seen on an equal footing with these adults. And in some cases, they really exceed adult capacity for um, understanding and refinement. It's just partly the child's brain, um, you know, across all spectrums of development, there's such receptivity and, and freshness and energy, um, partly through the, the magic of discovering a skill for the first time. Oh, this is so cool. Um,
0: yeah. So, um, you know, since we're getting right there, let's talk about the Royal School of Church Music and kind of what it is and um how how it's different from just like a regular choir.
1: Yeah. Now, a, the Royal School of Church Music isn't necessarily a choir, but it, it it feeds into it. And perhaps you mean a Royal School of Church Music affiliated choir. Mm-hmm. Um, the Royal School of Church Music is an international organization that was started in England um, under the patronage of the Queen. And I think legally still the Queen is a patron, but it has grown since 1927 into a, an interdenominational organization with um, 8,500 member institutions in over 40 countries um, ah. so it, it has a vast reach and it's it's by far the largest um, church organization in England and it's still technically run by the Church of England but it has in its branches in other countries particularly it's adapted a, a, an interdenominational model um, you can see the American iteration of this at rscmamerica.org and there's a lot of um, interesting stuff there. Um, but the three main branches of it are um, publishing. They publish music of a high quality and make available things that, that other publishers wouldn't take. Um, uh, two, there's the Voice for Life training curriculum, which trains uh, people of any age to learn about their voice and how to use it well. And the third branch of what they do is training courses. And there's a big one here in Rhode Island. There are um, training courses all over the world. In America, there tends to be about a dozen each summer where various configurations of choirs gather for an intensive week. Um, It's sort of like giving choir members a chance to go to a special convention. They go and they do what they normally do in their choirs at home, but they refine it with a guest leader, a guest conductor. And it's always great for a choir to... Uh, work with someone new and mm-hmm. and hear some of the same uh, skills being sought um, by a different person in a different way. Make new friends, um, travel, go somewhere else to, um, uh, you know, put on a church service and have recreation and, and fun uh, uh, when not in rehearsals. See a new part of the world. People love to come to the Newport course because Newport's so gorgeous and mm-hmm. the rehearsals are held in one of the mansions and... Uh, it, it's uh, and that the people are boarded at the dorms at Salve Regina University, and it's it's wow, it's like a paradise. <laughs> it is, it is, and and um, these are children not just from the Episcopal Church, but from various denominations that use the training scheme. So, the courses are sort of the fruition, and um, like a convention, a uh, an intensification of the principles of the organization. Um, publishing makes some of the music possible, but the, the real crux of what they do and what creates what, what you, uh, defined as an RSCM choir Mm -hmm. is the RSCM training scheme. And it's something that is called voice for life. Um, it is a, a curriculum that takes you through, um, five different levels of skill. And like the graded uh, piano exams in the United Kingdom, or uh, well, other parts of the world as well, where you're, you imagine the John Thompson piano book, you have book one, and then you proceed to right. book two, or Suzuki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the way it's uh, the way it's arranged in the Voice for Life scheme, um, and I'll just read you a, a little sentence from the preface of one of the books. There are workbooks that the children use uh, along with instructors and they fill up book one with all their knowledge and they keep it for reference and they move on to book two. Um, This is is what it says. Welcome to Voice for Life. It is designed to help you discover what your voice can do and then strengthen it. It will encourage you to learn about music and look at what it means to be a singer and a member of a choir. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at Um, human physiology, understanding why posture and breathing and things like that are important and how they affect your sound. Um, music theory. So reading notes and understanding all those Italian terms that, that pepper the scores of, of music from all kinds of composers. Um, getting experience with sight reading and then the, the part about understanding what your choir does Um, or what it it means to be a member, a singer in a choir. There is an emphasis on community and the sorts of um, respect and interdependence on adults and things that I was mentioning earlier. Um, There are some questions and some essay projects and um, some little assignments where you interview an older member of the choir or one of the adult members of the choir and you learn about what brought them to the institution the history of the choir its repertoire its work in the community its affiliation with your church or with a school or you know rscm is certainly not just used by churches and my own children as i mentioned are part of the program here in newport i have an eight-year-old and a an almost 14 year old Mm. and they are at, at various stages um so the rscm choir when you see an rscm choir of the vested sort like you would find in an episcopal church you can identify their presence uh, and their training by the little ribbons and medallions they wear and you see these all around the world and it's fun because when you have a training course you bring your medals and people that are all at the same training level can identify them themselves instantly and they know you know this is this is how it goes. There mm-hmm. there's the white level, which is basically getting the white part of your uniform, the surplus that goes over your robe. And that's not worn with a medal. But that is awarded when you've gotten the basic skills mostly of behavior and attention down. <laughs> not so much into the music theory yet, but it sets a very good framework. The white level was the first um has been the first level only for maybe a decade. It was added, um, Maybe ten maybe at most fifteen years ago recognizing that we needed um something to start start off the the totally clueless um, <laughs> uh, a seven year old who had never been in a church because more and more such seven year olds existed but could be you know beneficially installed in these programs and so it it just gave some of the basics of standing and paying attention and and um so, once you earn your your wings, as it were, the white part of your robe, then the next level, or book two, is light blue and once you finish that, you 've learned, for example, to read key signatures up to one sharp and one flat, and you understand what that one sharp and that one flat do, and a little bit more about reading rhythms and and basic understanding and then you get your light blue medal and it's not really a medal it's a it's a ribbon the medal is a medallion that has saint nicholas on it um it's uh, there because saint nicholas is the patron saint of children and how wonderful to have this interview airing two days before christmas how timely Um, uh you know saint nicholas was known for historically giving secret gifts and hence um santa who is santa claus saint claus um but it's a great gift as well to give um music education as a life formation and it's it's a really apt choice so there's saint nick on the metal these little bronze medals that are worn with ribbons and the ribbons then progress from the light blue level to dark blue where you learn up to uh four flats and four sharps and then there's the red level and finally the yellow level and so these five levels um, in in the application here at the Choir School of Newport County, we um, we pay our choristers, as many churches do, a small stipend for their valued work in rehearsals and services, and we directly pay, or we directly gear the the rate of pay to their level in the training scheme. So it's a definite um, impetus uh, incentive to do well and progress through these workbooks. And it generally takes between a year and a year and a half to work through one level. Um, A turbo child can do it in half a year. Uh, You can, um, I've seen uh, programs where this is all done on a uh, set your own speed kind of independent study basis, but that takes a lot of time on the part of the instructors. And fortunately, this is one of the things that is not interrupted by a pandemic. Um, Aside from the part of using your voice, which can still be effectively demonstrated and taught over Zoom, uh, we have not slowed down at all with our theory teaching. And we have a teacher in New Jersey who was here in this area a year ago, um, but has continued to teach for us because he has a rapport with... certain group of students and as they progress to the next level he knows their skills and their experience um working through the first level so he's going on to the second and it's it's a great thing because the children can still uh you know maybe not completely effectively gather those skills because they're not using them in in singing choir as there's not the direct application but they can they can gather the skills and have those reinforced when we can get back to singing in person. Mm. Um, The other thing I guess I should say we're fortunate to do at the choir school, Newport County that not everyone can do is that we can keep singing on a reduced level um, because we happen to have a very large parish hall with really good acoustics. And I can split our group of 15 boys and girls in half and Half of them will come on Monday and the other half will come on Thursday to allow three days for any Corona cooties to die. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) And each has a dedicated um, set of earphones uh, with a microphone. And we have these very long cables and they're set up with 14 foot distancing and we keep masks on the whole time. And even though that's a strange way to do choir, we can all hear each other through these microphones and earphones. And then the result can be recorded by another microphone in the room, just like a regular recording session. And these two halves of the choir can easily be overdubbed um, and put together and Mm -hmm. you have the whole choir. And we have sort of staggered our way through the pandemic continuing to put out some really nice things and give the students a sense of accomplishing something um, and applying our theory um, instruction and just getting on with it as best we can. We're fortunate because we have that big space and we have the technology. We were Mm -hmm. uh, given a grant to purchase the technology and we're doing what we can uh, as everyone is They're They're doing the best they can.
0: That's so incredible. Is that, um, I know you guys came out with a Christmas album. Was that how Mm -hmm. it was recorded?
1: That's how some of it was recorded. We had the opportunity to, Do some overdubbing like that, where we took a new piece and we started from scratch, like a hymn. What I would do to record a hymn in the pandemic is I'd record it on the organ first. And then as a backing track, I would play that through the headphones of the singers and they would sing. And we would have half the children one week and we'd have half the children the next week or three days apart, as I say we do children one week and then we do adults the next week. And, and the next week the tenors and basses come on one day and the altos and sopranos come another day. So it takes four sessions to have our entire choir, but we just keep layering them up and they all sing to the same organ track. So everyone's voices rhythmically align. You, you put it together in the editor and it's very rare that you have to nudge a cutoff or a breath, um, you know, you can do a little cleanup, but mm-hmm. it works. Um, It's just like singing to a backing track. If you're making a pop CD, everyone sings to the same drum track or instrumentalists in different parts of the country all play to the same backing track and it locks together. Right. So there's several things on the disc that were made that way. There are several things that are simply archival recordings from services, things that didn't need any doctoring. Um, And then there's the hybrid where we took an actual recording of, an anthem or, for instance, the creed. We do a choral setting, the Apostles' Creed. And we did it with a trumpet player, and the trumpet was too loud, and there were some background noises that were too loud. And so you can still make use of a recording that otherwise has merit by overdubbing and putting layers of voices on top of it, which, in context, make the backing track softer, make it seem softer. It recedes. And the presence of the voices and a desk come to the fore. And, you know, if you just blend it the right way in the editor, you get a sort of hybrid performance that sounds as if live. Hmm. There's still a congregation singing along. It's still a live experience, but it's been sweetened and rebalanced through this technology. So we've overdubbed some with just the adults. We've done some overdubbing with just the children, and we've done some overdubbing with all of them.
0: That's amazing. I would love to play um, one of these pieces. I was thinking about playing the bird, Nunc
1: Yes. Now, uh, I know it sounds very glamorous to uh, whet everyone's appetite for the the result (laughs) of overdubbing, but this wonderful track is simply a live performance. And this came from uh, an even song that we sang in Worcester Cathedral in England in August of 2018. beautiful um well thank you it's it's of course um enhanced by the wonderful acoustic of these english cathedrals and perhaps that's the goal in the editing i've done uh, with the overdubs that are on this cd to sort of create that atmosphere and we do have three seconds of natural reverberation in the hall um and worcester cathedral has about three seconds in the choir area. It's choir with a Q, that part mm. of the building where the choir <laughs> sings, as opposed to their nave, which is a much um, different part of the building, constructed at a different time and has a different acoustic. But in, in any case, what, what comes through on that recording, which was made in the choir stalls, um, is that wonderful sense of both the atmosphere beyond the singers and the intimacy of the diction and the clarity of voices, individual voices and tuning and so on. It's a very refined choral sound um, that's partly um, impossible to separate from the environment.
0: Mm. Amazing. Um So I think this episode is just such a perfect one to be released this time because we're talking so much about children and, you know, it's Christmas time and we have baby Jesus all over the place. Um, And the theme of this season is kind of about service and how, how faith, how God, how the church can be of service. So I was wondering What your take is on that, um, involving children in in choir like this, or what what does music bring as a service for people?
1: It's interesting you ask that, because the motto of the Choir School of Newport County uh, since 2014 has been forming lives of character and service through the joy and discipline of intergenerational choral music and i realize that's a mouthful of a of a of a phrase <laughs> um but it is uh lives of character and service a character comes from being a professional as a child and simply towing the line and the expectations and the expectations are very high um, it's it's not a program that every child will succeed in because some are just too wiggly or some don't have the parental support to make a serious commitment. And the most important commitment in a program like this anywhere in the world is consistent attendance. So that's, you know, that's obvious, but the service aspect, um, it, it comes through the music, I suppose through the meaning of the music, the music that we sing is largely Christian and The secular music we do also has some component of, I should say, service. I I would select a secular piece for its value in teaching the same sorts of of basic human rights and and human gestures of compassion as a sacred piece. The uh, example that comes to mind is a little piece called I Can Give You the Starlight by Ivor Novello. It's a little love song, but it's a wonderful vehicle for the child's voice. It has a good range and it has good vocal issues and audiences love it. It's tuneful, but it says in the middle, um, when I was young, um, my foolish fancies led me to waste all my time basically. But now that I'm a little older and a little wiser, I realize the joy of giving And that's appropriate, not just at Christmas. And we sing it um, about every other year for our spring concert. And I'll talk to the choristers about what this means. Why are you uh, developing these skills if not to share them with someone who will take this message and and have it make a difference in their life? Um, Back to where we started the interview. Uh, How does this make a difference in your life when you... Realize that you're able to touch someone through the music you make, either through the direct example of the words you're telling them or the beautiful sound that inspires them or moves them in an emotional way or any combination of those things. And what about inspiring people of all ages to consider that anything is possible? If a child can do this, um, anything is possible, right? Now, Service comes down to those sorts of thoughts. But when you say that word, it often conjures up direct things like community service. What what can a choir do to go and make a difference? And we have gone to sing in nursing homes, I've taken the choristers several times, to sing Christmas carols in nursing homes. And that's, that's, sorry, I'm getting verklempt. Mm. That's such a an amazing gift to give. Um, when I was growing up in this Methodist church, there was a very old man. He was, I think, 90 when he was doing the kind of community service. And he took me along because I would play the piano as a 10-year-old. And he would take me to nursing homes and, and let me play the piano for uh, 10 minutes. And then we'd leave but what it would do for those residents the looks on their faces the joy that it would bring and um, he taught me the the intense communication of playing hymns and it would bring out something from their childhood Um, i learned this extremely profoundly when my grandfather had a stroke and was in a, a care facility for the last year of his life and shortly before he died i remember going and playing hymns on a little electronic organ in the chapel at this Lutheran nursing home where he was. And he hadn't spoken in a, in nearly a full year. And he started moaning and making words along with the hymns Mm -hmm. because he, he could still on a, on a different wavelength, a different part of his brain connected to his childhood and his career. He was, um, he was a Mennonite minister. So he knew all the hymns by heart, as it were, mm-hmm. and it was it was just amazing to see. So so I've told the children about that, and then I'll take them to a nursing home, and they'll see it for themselves. Another thing we do in direct service is, is financial support. Um, for instance, this CD that you've mentioned, we have been the recipient of many grants from the community, from uh, the Rhode Island State Council of the Arts. Um, which we use only for our piano outreach program, giving piano lessons to needy students who otherwise wouldn't have access to them. Um, we do that because of course, state money can't be used to fund a religious organization. Um, but we have received gifts from the Rhode Island foundation um, and many individuals and family foundations. And we give back in that we, we use that grant money to buy the technology educate our choristers, make a recording, and now we're selling the recording and half the proceeds of the recording are going to the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Center, which is the major outreach in the north end of Newport, providing food, shelter, um, education, all sorts of vital services. Mm. So you ask a child, what are you doing for the community? What are you doing for service? guess it's uh, there's a step in between but my school has generated something to sell to directly benefit the community. It's
0: beautiful you know singing at nursing homes or or using your gifts you know what's the point of building these skills if not to share them you know that's how I grew up as well growing up in a one-room schoolhouse that was made into an Episcopal church there's only about 15 people that went and I've been the youngest member since I was born. So, (laughs) you know, no new people are coming, but to grow up, I got piano lessons from our organist um, until she went to a home and then, you know, I would go to the home with my siblings and sing hymns and Mm -hmm. everyone, everyone knows them all. And I'm sure like when I hear him, yeah, I could probably sing the first verse, maybe the first and half of the second by memory, but Mm -hmm. you go and especially with, you know, carols, but even with, with other hymns, people will know all the verses word for word. And it brings out this, um, memory, this sense memory in them.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the connection of music and words makes things much easier to memorize. I, I know that's why when you're learning something like the periodic table, um, you you learn a little song to go with it. Or, you know, why is the alphabet? Why does it have a song in every language? It, it, it makes it easier to remember. And when you put music with um, words that have a theological journey, for instance, something like... Um, Oh, uh, little town of Bethlehem or for all the saints or, or something that, that tells a story. You can remember the complete story more easily when you've added it to the music. Now the music is the same for five or eight stanzas in those cases, but um, it gets the memory going, doesn't it? It, it really connects things. It's wonderful how the brain works that way and how music it's like God's secret, brilliant language. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's subversive in a way. I mean, you can, you, can, you can consider how Christmas carols have soaked into the mall culture. And yes, they're, they're often the secular carols that are played at malls. But every now and then, some CD or some, you know, Spotify, some, some track gets in there that is like Oh Holy Night. And like, oh, yeah, this story is being told. This amazing story, Christ's birth, is actually being told in these commercial venues and even if 0003 percent of the people that hear this reflect on it that's more than would otherwise happen and that might be thousands of people mm-hmm. with all music services who knows i just think it's cool it's it's like one of god's good ideas <laughs> I'm, get him with carlos he
0: has so many good <laughs> ideas
1: <laughs> that's right
0: so if you have any social media that you'd like to plug where can we find you
1: well, the the best source is really the Choir School website, which is www.thechoirschoolri.org. And there you can link to our Facebook page, uh, which is the only social social media we use. There is a posting of our virtual Christmas concert, which includes several tracks from the CD that you mentioned. And of course, you can... Also, from the the homepage of the website, go to um, uh, a site that's that's done by our digital distributor, CD Baby. So it, it allows you to audition a sample of each track and to buy downloads. And there is a um, there's a link to a little flyer if you want to order a hard copy. You can order them um, by mail from our administrative office. So it's, it's www. Dot thechoirschoolri.org and I do hope people will enjoy the Christmas concert. It's a, a virtual compilation of Christmas's past um, several of these overdubs uh, the very first minute I'll describe briefly is, is three of the girls in the choir they did uh, a quintuple overdub to sing a trio so all three of them sang the lowest part, all three of them sang the middle part, all three of them sang the middle part, the middle part again all three of them sang the top part twice. And so that's 15 singers when you put it in the editor and it sounds like a choir of 15, but it's just three voices. And because they're the same voices, they blend so supremely well, just like a pop singer that does his or her own backup vocals in overdubs. It's it's amazing. The timing, the nuance, everything is there and they sing for a minute. And then I play an organ piece based on that wonderful carol. And it just in one minute, you can, you can tell that these kids know what they're doing. <laughs> I watched sort
0: of it. I I watched it and it was absolutely fabulous. I was blown oh, away. You. Well, Peter, this has been such a wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed um, hearing your perspective and your experiences. And I just feel like you have such a wholesome, loving and, um, just like faithful way of approaching your work. Um, so thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: You're so welcome. I hope these, these little stories will be helpful or inspiring to some. I, as I said, I really just stand on the backs of giants and try and pay it forward and work with what I've been given. Mm. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the
1: Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island and the right Reverend Nicholas Nisley. We would like to thank Mariah Aconde and Jack Zornado for the music. Taylor Wilkie and Ivy Swinski are producers, as well as our guests today. Follow us at Tea Time Theology on all social medias. Christ for
0: the world we sing. The world to Christ we bring with joyful song. The new-born souls whose days reclaimed from ever's waste, Inspired with hope and grace, to Christ belong.